I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. Today, I have a conversation with Rebecca Buckwalter-Poza. She's a legal analyst who's provided legal and political commentary on CNN and MSNBC. She's also written for The Atlantic, The Pacific Standard, and Politico. We talk about several of her articles today, including a book she co-authored with James Carville titled 40 More Years, How Democrats Will Rule the Next Generation. It was published in 2009, but many of the observations she made are still valid. We talk about threats to civil rights and to LGBTQ rights in relation to the Supreme Court. Also, we talk about the fact that Rebecca has been blocked by Trump on Twitter. She tweeted something about Russia, he blocked her, and then she sued. So without further ado, here is Rebecca Buckwalter-Poza. Rebecca, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me on, Jen. So you're one of seven people who's suing Trump for blocking them on Twitter. So what was the tweet? What got you blocked? Well, the president, as as he is wont to do, made a reference to how he won the White House. And I just quoted him and said, to be fair, you didn't win the White House. Russia won it for you. Right. Some period after that, I, I discovered that I'd been blocked. Uh, and I'm, I'm pretty sure that was the tweet. It, it, there was a, you know, not not much time in between. And, and that got enough thousands of likes and retweets that I'm fairly confident that's that's what got me blocked. But I mean, that's actually pretty interesting because that means you have quite a bit of social capital. I, I would not be blocked by the president. Right. So how did the lawsuit come about? Um, well, I, I mean, first, I'd say I'm, I'm flattered to say that, I, you know, that you'd think I have social capital. But one of the things that's most damaging about this is that I don't. And Twitter has been one of my principal ways of sort of interacting with people and building a network. And, and now being left out of this conversation has really cut me off at the knees. Um, and, and the lawsuit is just standing up for the First Amendment. It's it's not a badge of honor. It's a, a sign of crisis for um, our, our country when we have the president uh, violating the First Amendment in this way and and excluding people from what he's already sort of deemed a, the political conversation for his, you know, presidency. And, you know, I think that I was thinking about the, the uh, you know, the claim that you make about it affecting your job, right? Because I think in your job description, you are tasked with writing about Trump from a legal perspective. But I think because of the way he's chosen to conduct his own presidency in relation to how he communicates to the public and with the media via Twitter and you know with that being essentially his primary mouthpiece you know, he's set the stage for a lawsuit like this because that's where he you know tweets out policy you know he tweets out military threats. And so I'm just curious, how do you actually get your tweets now? Uh, well, I mean, it's the, there aren't really any good workarounds. Um, I can, you know, use a second account uh, to see them, but then I'm not me on Twitter, right? It's not my right. handle. That's my identity with my network. Um, and I'm not able to, you know, I'm not verified if I have a second account and verification sort of gives you a boost in the conversation and and lets you engage. Um, And it means that I have to choose between seeing what he tweeted and, um, and, you know, being myself and sort of engaging other people on it. Um, And just watching the conversation unfold from a second account and not being able to participate is, is really not at all the same thing. You know, and I think that it's interesting that he's chosen Twitter as his medium of choice. Out of all of the social media outlets, he's chosen Twitter 
there was some study that was done recently about social media outlets and which ones have the most the most abusive content, the most abusive rhetoric. And I think Twitter came out on top. Um, I think that this is the only way that he can exert power over the media. I, you know, it's, it's a mystery why he's chosen to make this a public forum. But what I know is it, it is, I mean, as you point out, the primary political engagement with the public that he engages in. Um, and it's the only way to sort of enter the conversation about policy. And he's chosen to shut people out on the basis of viewpoint, which is distorting the conversation that's unfolding on Twitter. Um, and I guess people who are familiar with Twitter, you know that if you reply, that it creates this sort of thread that you can follow and, and multiple people can engage one another and you can quote a tweet and all of these things, which can be an amazing way to see a diversity of ideas and to, you know, create really a marketplace of ideas. Unless, for example, you're choosing to shut people out who who have a certain viewpoint. So, um, for example, I, I don't think it was the number of followers I have. I think it was the the viewpoint that I was espousing that got me blocked. Right, right. So we should be concerned about this because this is an infringement on freedom of the press, freedom of speech, I mean, or why should we be concerned about this? <laughs> well, discrimination on the basis of viewpoint in a public forum, I mean, that's, that's you know, basic constitutional law. That's, that's not permitted. That's unconstitutional. Um, and it's also very jarring. I mean, in terms of, you know, people should be concerned that, that voices are being silenced in this media. For sure. Someone mentioned also about the role of the press and the role of, you know, public analysts like yourself being intermediaries between the president and the public. So it's it's your role to kind of interpret and re-deliver and to correct misstatements from the presidency. And, you know, he's been very clear about the fact that he doesn't want that intermediary body. He wants to go directly to the public. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not a reporter, right? I, I am a journalist in the sense that I provide legal commentary or legal analysis, but it is still vital to be able to remain current, you know, to participate in these conversations and engage ideas because it's sort of, you know, you can reply and say, does this have this consequence? And, you know, what is the importance of this? And there's someone else in the conversation who knows more than you about that. Um, or there's someone else who has a different opinion. And it's an incredibly important way, at least, you know, for me, the way that I write um, and I do this job. It's an incredibly important exchange to have um, and and also just to see his tweets and sort of, um, you know, I, I can't even see which tweet someone's quoting right. um, if something pops up on my timeline. It's a gray box, which is how I figured out I was blocked in the first place. I'm just curious as to what your thoughts on whether it's presidential or not. And I know the idea of what behavior is presidential is subjective, right? And and I have my own opinion. I, I personally don't think that a president should should tweet um, foreign policy or banning certain groups from the military. And I've worked for my entire career in the technology industry. So I'm a big supporter of using technology to kind of modernize government and to modernize communication between, you know, the public and, and government, but just not in this way. You know, he set the terms, he made it a public forum. It's not for me a thing to sort of 
judge. That's that's just not where I am, right? It's not presidential or, or unpresidential. It's constitutional or unconstitutional. And that's just sort of how I viewed it. Um, and and so I guess I'm just not thinking in, in quite that dimension. Fair enough. So you co-authored a book with James Carville, which was published, I think, in 2009. It was right after the, the 2008 election. And the title is 40 More Years how the Democrats will rule the next generation. Right. I'll, I'll never right. make so, any money as a psychic. <laughs> you know, I was just reading that. So I read that for our, our interview. And, and I actually think it's really important to read right now. And here's why. Because all of the assertions that you make in the book are still true. <laughs> the only thing that it, it's still true. Right, so no, all the assertions right. you make in, in relation to voter suppression, yeah. right? In relation to, you know, conservatives building this large coalition and they're, you know, seeing how far they could push this kind of non-factual messaging. All of those kind of big themes in the book that you made are true. The only difference is, this, is the outcome. Yeah. Right? So, so, so why do you think that 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 did not happen. Where do you think the breakdown happened? I think there is a crisis in voting rights and it's, it's, you know, everything from issues more subtle than we're currently triaging to the incredibly audacious and, and just shocking gerrymandering that's going on. Um, And, and that's, you know, both that can, you know, both, both what, what proved us wrong um, or right in the sense that, you know, we said this was going to happen and this was their other Republicans only means of um, continuing to be elected to office. But I think it's, it's just that it's far more pervasive uh, and more extensive than we imagined. And, and that's something to be very concerned about. Right. I absolutely agree. I think that, and this is just my assessment after reading it and what I've learned, you know, since then, I think that the Republican plan for, let's just take voter suppression, for instance, just as an example, I think that they were far more dogged and far more resilient than anyone ever thought. I think we thought after the Florida decision with Bush v. Gore and the whole hanging Chad situation after the, the second election of Bush, there was a lot of talk about it at the time about voter suppression and we were all alarmed, but then it just kind of, it kind of disappeared. And then it popped up again. Was it 2010 that Carl Rove wrote the op-ed in the Wall Street Journal and the Red Map Project started, which kind of kicked off the whole gerrymandering and voter suppression effort. So I think that they were kind of a little more dogged than we would have anticipated in 2009. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I, I think I also don't mean to sort of exonerate my own party from the responsibility to communicate with people who didn't turn out to, you know, make the case to, to folks who could have voted and didn't. Um, I just think that the primary drive is, yeah, I mean, this... Um, you know, total lack of compunctions uh, on the part of the Republican Party when it comes to both redistricting and uh, what they'll say. What we have right now is an administration that is unprecedented in terms of, um, you know, they're not just lying. They're telling you the truth doesn't matter. I mean, it started with lying and then it went beyond lying, which I didn't think was possible. You know, one of the biggest whoppers from, I think this was 2008 election, were death panels. And we were all alarmed at that. And I think that if we could see into the future, we'd be truly alarmed about the things that are being told to the public well, now. Absolutely. I mean, death panels, there was sort of a predicate. Right. It was an absolute distortion. It was a complete misrepresentation. But there was some tiny anchor or tie. It went back to something. 
what Trump does is just fabricate. I mean, he just says things. Um, and, and even after being debunked, he'll insist on the same figures without support. I think that's the thing. He never produces support or substantiates things. He's not interested in, in presenting it as the truth. He's just saying it. Um, and, and that's different. So you mentioned earlier about kind of dismissing the, the, the failures or the problems in, in the Democratic Party. I think one of the things that was highlighted for me when reading it was this conservative coalition, which they've carefully built. You know, they've brought together the evangelical rights with, you know, fiscal conservatives and they've been working on broadening the umbrella for a really long time. And I think that's something, in my opinion, that Democrats have failed to do. No, I, I think that that is we need to find a way to ar- do a better job of articulating a progressive vision for government and law. I mean, for myself as, as sort of a, a legal commentator, um, thinker in that space, I, I just have observed the right doing a better job in every respect from from cultivating uh, individuals whom they can sort of send everywhere from the Wall Street Journal to the Yale Law Review to propagate conservative ideas to being very focused and launching multi-decade campaigns to redefine things. You know, for example, the Second Amendment. They convinced the United States and the Supreme Court contrary to the Constitution, contrary to history, contrary to precedent, that the Second Amendment created this individual right to bear arms. Um, and this was this was just a campaign, right? And there's no corollary on the progressive side. There's not a knitting together of issues and a sort of concerted effort to accomplish certain goals. It's, it's a lot of division and that's really problematic because we should be able to quickly articulate the progressive vision. We should all be working toward that. I think one of the most relevant things that we can, you know, glean from reading this book, you know, nine years later is how far we've fallen. Because I think, you know, we're, we're quick to forget where we were, you know, nine years ago. So nine years ago, after the Bush presidency, we were, we were apologizing to the world for the second, for, you know, his second term. Right. And I, and, you know, there was some piece that was done recently. I forget which, which paper it was in. Perhaps it was the New York Times kind of highlighting Bush in his, you know, later years. You know, he's taken up painting and, you know, it's very quaint and, you know, it was a heartwarming story. But, you know, the, the Bush administration did quite a bit of damage. And I think that's one thing that we've lost by, you know, just kind of watching the circus of the Trump administration, just how, just how far we've fallen from that. Well, I mean, I think this administration has just created problems so fundamental and so enormous that they eclipse pretty much everything else. Um, so I, I can't, you know, blame anyone for for being attentive to the, uh, you know, possibility of nuclear war. I, I admit, though, I'm I'm not here for the rehabilitation of George W. Bush. I just want every person who has an issue to be able to say, and this is about personal liberty you know, both reproductive justice and LGBT rights fall under liberty in the Constitution. So why aren't we talking about these larger narratives? You know, not not in my law wonk terms, but fitting this into these are the principles we stand for. And, and this is how my issue relates back to these core issues we stand for. Um, and yeah, I'd love to see that.
So I want to talk a bit about the Supreme Court because I started reading your work um, from an article you'd written. It was called, um, it was titled, Judge Gorsuch Threatens the Dignity of LGBT People, right? So what what's the threat that, that you lay out in this article? Um, you know, you, you don't have the longest track record with uh, Justice Gorsuch in terms of judicial opinions, but you have an entire book that he wrote on a sort of legally adjacent topic. Um, and if you look at the concepts that underlie what gay rights precedent we have, Gorsuch is on the wrong side of, well, everything. And most Supreme Court justices sit back for a bit, right? When they've just joined the court, they don't take the lead. They're not aggressive. He was very aggressive. And in one of the cases, it was 6-3 and the court summarily affirmed a decision uh, saying that Arkansas had to put the second spouse's name on the birth certificate if it was a same-sex couple, essentially. I mean, I'm, I'm taking a, a major shortcut, but essentially it said, we said what we said in Obergefell, you're getting it wrong. And Gorsuch went and, and wrote a dissent that strongly indicated um, he would support states passing legislation or municipalities uh, enacting policies that would essentially strip the benefits of marriage from same-sex couples. Um, and there's even already a case that's going to work its way up to the Supreme Court more than likely or could out of Texas, which alleges just that, right? That you have the right to marry, but you don't necessarily have the right to benefits. Right. So he's written similar opinions over and over again throughout his career. And I think you you string those together to support that he has a narrative here, right? He has a goal. So what do you think his goal is? Well, to become the conservative leader on the court. I mean, you don't come in, I suppose, as the junior most justice and then author this really right dissent um, unless you are are signaling that that's where you want to go. Chief Justice Roberts joined the majority in this Arkansas case and Justice Gorsuch wrote a dissent as the junior most justice. That is a strong signal that he's going to follow through on the Trump administration's guarantee of uh, the rightmost justice that they can appoint. And God knows, I hope they don't get to appoint any other uh, or nominate any other justices. Well, that's that's a that's a really great risk, right? I mean, the fact that we have, I think, um, three octogenarians on the Supreme Court right now, I hope that they, you know, make it through the first Trump presidency or at least through the midterms, because I think that that is our only hope for keeping the Supreme Court balanced. Right. And I mean, it's Justice Kennedy in particular, and I've written on this, is critical because he is the fifth vote when it's come to every major gay rights case so far, and he's authored all three of them. And, you know, another thing I've written on is we still don't have what would be the real bedrock for LGBT rights. You, you could do it one of two ways. You could say um, LGBT people are protected in the same way that a racial minority or a religious minority is protected. Um, or you could say, you know what, it's the same thing as sex discrimination. So you're protected to the same extent that a woman is protected against or a man is protected against discrimination on the basis of his sex based on your sexual orientation because it's about the sex, your sex in relation to the sex of the person you date. 
And we don't have either of those things. And without Justice Kennedy, there's no chance that we'll get either of those things. So Gorsuch isn't the only only threat, right? I mean, there is, of course, Jeff Sessions, who recently wrote an opinion about a case, I think, in New York. Yeah, he intervened in, in the federal case, making the argument that um, civil rights laws did not protect the gay community. Yeah, so that is the second thing that I was talking about, and I knew they'd taken that stance. So that's the Title VII. That's, I, I sort of vastly oversimplified it. The Justice Department on under Sessions is going to say that LGBT people are not protected under sex discrimination. I mean, they're certainly going to take the stance that they're not protected um, in the way that other minorities are within the United States. But this is a very specific position they're taking at a critical point where these cases are, are working their way up to the Supreme Court. You have the Seventh Circuit uh, parting from its precedent and saying Yes, we we think that sex discrimination does cover sexual orientation and we were wrong before, but it takes the entire court meeting together for the circuit to overturn precedent. So it's a slow process. However, we are now at the point where one of these cases will reach the Supreme Court soon and, and perhaps force the question of whether sexual orientation is covered. And that's Sessions you know, wants to be out of the gate immediately establishing where they are on that. And that's no protections for the LGBT community. You know, it's interesting that what's happened with this administration is that there are people who have an agenda like Sessions and like Gorsuch who are surrounding Trump, right, to to push through their agenda. But he doesn't really have any specific stake in this this argument. It's more about the members of his base and what they care about rather than what he cares about. This is the most anti-LGBT administration in history in terms of just the number of high-profile targeted attacks on LGBT rights and prospective LGBT rights that they've already undertaken. Um, and, And what high-profile efforts these have been. This is a a central plank of the platform in a way that it is just deeply troubling. And I think that, you know, unfortunately, whatever the motivation, there is the very real obligation, the sort of promise that Tony Perkins and Jerry Falwell keep trotting out um, that Trump has made this bargain. And He's also, he's not just made it, he's made it enthusiastically. So it doesn't really matter to me, to any other LGBT Americans, why he's doing it. He has embraced it enthusiastically. He is actively undertaking efforts to discriminate that are beyond what he has to do for this bargain because he's already signed this expansive executive order. This transgender ban uh, tweet came out of nowhere Right. So that's the enthusiasm he shows for stripping rights from LGBT people should be of concern to everyone. And the other thing is just the extent to which there is this concerted campaign to redefine religious freedom. The Religious Freedom Restoration Act, RIFRA, was never meant to permit discrimination. It was passed to prevent discrimination. And it's gone from this sort of, um, you know, negative right, the right not to be discriminated against on the basis of 
an identity to this positive right to discriminate against other people on the basis of their identity, which is insane. Um, they've just inverted this this very important principle and perverted it for their own discriminatory use. Right. I think the thing that continues to baffle me is this need to to legislate other people's morality, essentially. So that's something that they've continued to do from lots of different different angles. So I wanted to mention also that the Supreme Court isn't the only risk. You talked a lot about the appellate court. Right. 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 So what are the risks at the appellate court level? Most of the law that's made by courts is made at the appellate level. So you have every state belongs to a circuit. And and when a circuit court, an appellate court makes a decision, that's the law for whatever states are part of that circuit. And the Supreme Court doesn't hear that many cases, actually. So you have right now a record number of vacancies because of the Republicans' obstructionism and their refusal to honor, to, to do their job, to honor the process of nomination, hearing, confirmation for judges under President Obama. So the possibility is, because this number of, of vacancies will grow with retirements and so on, that President Trump will get to nominate between 70 and 90 appellate judges, which is just terrifying. You know, and I think one of the examples that that reminds me of a case that that could possibly get to the Supreme Court or one that did get to the Supreme Court was Shelby County versus Holder, which, you know, started at the local level and went through the appellate courts and then ended up in the Supreme Court and was ultimately passed the restrictions on voting rights, the Voting Rights Act. I mean, that's one of the, the travesties that has already occurred without two Trump justices on the Supreme Court is the very premature end of preclearance requirements in states where race-based discrimination and, and other forms of voter suppression are still very much extant and aggressive. You know, you'd um, written an article titled How Conservatives Are Trying to Rewrite the Constitution. And in that article, you talked about the constitutional convention, a constitutional convention. What is that exactly? No one's really sure which is just one problem with this effort on the part of conservatives to use this mode of amending the Constitution that has never been used before, which is to get a two-thirds majority of states to call for a constitutional convention. And Congress is who gets to decide when you've met the two-thirds threshold. And there are some requirements. It has to be that the two-thirds, the 34 states have all expressed a desire to amend in the same way, et cetera. But arguably that threshold has been reached before and the call for a constitutional convention has been rejected. So there's not really precedent. This is an area that that people argue about. But the real concern is that both the you know federal legislature and a lot of the states, most of the states are controlled by conservatives. So this is yet another method by which uh, Republicans may entr- may try to entrench changes, right? Because the problem with the courts is when, when you nominate 70 to 90 appellate judges or a Supreme Court justice, these are lifetime appointments. And the changes they make to law will take perhaps even right. longer to undo because of the sort of statistical variations on the composition of appellate courts and of the Supreme Court. And amending the Constitution, I mean, that's even farther reaching, but 
there's nothing that I would put past the right at this point. So it's it's something that should be uh, troubling to people and that we should keep an eye on. But I haven't seen a lot of media attention to this, right? I think your article and there are a few others are the only ones that I've read regarding this. And you state that there are four more state, if, if four more state legislatures pass resolutions calling for a constitutional convention, then it would but it basically happened. Right. I think it's because it hasn't happened before and because it, it takes such a unique uh, constellation and the stars really have to align for this to be a vehicle for the right to wreak further havoc. But, you know, the, the Congressional Review Act, the CRA, also hadn't been used in this way before because there hadn't yet been an alignment of Congress and uh, the executive and when there was suddenly this provision, this law that, that hardly anyone was was paying attention to in the mainstream media became a way to strike any number of really critical regulations implemented by the Obama administration that had been years in the making. So, so why? What are they aiming for? Why do they want to change the Constitution? And I've read some things that could possibly be at stake, right? You know, like granting personhood to fetuses and, you know, you know rescinding the birthright citizenship. Um, why do they want to change the Constitution? Well, one thing is they're, they're using, I think, balanced budget amendment as a pretense to call this constitutional convention because they might, you know, they can modify anything once it has been convened. And the reason that they would use this as a vehicle is that they don't even have to control the Supreme Court as long as they've amended the Constitution. It's why Chief Justice Roberts went along with this Arkansas case I mentioned. He said, Obergefell's the law, we're following precedent. It's not his position. He dissented from Obergefell, but he follows precedent. So if they amend the Constitution, even if they don't have the Supreme Court in the future, even if the right doesn't, as it's poised to uh, have, the majority of appellate seats, they can still force the judiciary to follow a far-right agenda. Right. That's really worrying. Is this the thing that keeps you up at night <laughs> the most? Or? I, I just gave up on sleeping November 9th. <laughs> So have I. So have I. I mean, so so this and I mean, until I read this article, I think it was, you know, the, the Voting Rights Act. And you know, that's the thing that kept me up at night. Now, now this will. So I, I don't think I'll, I'll sleep again. It's just every time I think they can't, they won't. They do. And right. if I've if I've had one shortcoming and, and frankly, if, you know, the left has had one shortcoming, it's a failure of imagination when it comes to the audacity of the right uh, to lie, to upset custom, to do anything they can to get around the law to achieve their aims. Right. No, I agree with you. Um, so what do you think that people should be focused on right now? So there's lots of energy coming out of the Women's March. You know, there's lots of energy on the left. Um, you know, I feel that it's, it's, it's rather disparate, right? Um, and 2018 or 2018. Yeah, I agree with you. Right. So, you know, if we don't have control of Congress and the Senate, you know, all of this is kind of moot, right? right. I mean, a lot of things can be fixed through 2018. My two answers are state houses and 2018. 
because it is 69 of 99 uh, state legislative bodies are Republican at this point, something like that. And that's where we start losing. We need to retake state legislatures and we need to retake Congress. And that is where everyone's focus should be, which also means that we have to be focusing on voting rights. It's it's not just the campaigns, but I do think that that is the primary means because we can't fix voter suppression in full without retaking the legislatures. Right. Right. I, I agree with you. Rebecca, well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a true pleasure. Thank you so much. And thank you for being one of the six readers of 40 More Years. Thanks. I'm so glad to have gotten the chance to speak with you and really appreciate your thoughtful questions. 